from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Vernshee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joel Mitchell. How did I, Joel? Um, well, I'm a little bit sad because I saw on the news this morning that Tina Turner has passed. Mm, that was a bit sad. 80, yeah. 83? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but due to a long illness, apparently. So. Yeah, it wasn't very public. So no. I heard about that. Yeah. No, I hadn't heard about that either. But um, yeah, not somebody who's, I don't think I ever owned any any of her music, but she just was always there. Yeah. Sort of through through childhood and You're a bit of a singer back in the day. Did you ever belt out any Tina 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 I Turner uh tunes? Thanks. So. I would sing along, like yeah. but not um never like yeah, with, with a band or in karaoke or anything. Um she and I don't uh share quite the same vocal range. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I go okay, but I'm no Tina Turner. <laughs> yeah, and I can't imagine you like being as active as she is on, on no. stage. Yeah. Dancing and singing, mm. man, that's the mm. – that's like, yeah, being able to hold a tune while you're dancing, that's tough. Mm. Mm. What What would you sing um, back in the day? Because you were in a band. I was in a blues band. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Just whatever I liked, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, blues band, but you like grunge back yeah, in the day. Yeah, indie – yeah. Indie rock grunge, yeah. It's more, it, I mean, it's more about finding a song that works for your voice as well mm. um, rather than what music you especially enjoy listening to because sometimes the songs that you like aren't the songs that you can sing well. <laughs> yeah, that's very, very cool. Mm. Um, in my case, it's like every song. Well, yeah, I can't you sing. know, that in, in that case, you just can sing for the fun of it. Yeah. And it unless doesn't my, matter what you sound like. Unless my daughters are in the car and then I get, Dad, stop. Yeah, that happens to me as well. So that's really? that's irrespective oh, wow. of whether you're a good singer or not. Your kids just don't want to hear you sing. Yeah, that's it's not nice. No, this um, I think the first time that happened to me, Ronan was maybe five, and he was like, "Mum, are you singing?" I said, "Yeah." He said, Can you stop? Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely my son. <laughs> yeah, not nice. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we'll. You know, condolences to Tina yes. Turner and uh, Tina's family. Well, not mm. not condolences to her, but no, to her family. To her family. I said, I'm sorry, <coughs> her family. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that somber note, yeah, we should probably bring our guest in. That's that's Let's. probably the worst like, lead in to a guest we've had. <laughs> it might be. Yeah, that's a bit of a bummer. Yeah, it is. Sorry about that. <laughs> sorry about that. Okay, so this person's got a bit of work to do. Her uh, PhD research. Her PhD research explored the impacts of precarious employment on young people. She then went on to work within the business school at Massey University and was a member of the Healthy Work Group. She now applies her research expertise in the public sector of New Zealand. A warm welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kate Bone. Ahi ahi marie korua, or in your case, Morina korua, which is a good morning. And thank you so much for having me today. I thought that a perfect segue to the Tina Turner somberness was you could have said... And here's Kate. She's simply the best. Oh, uh, better than all the rest. Do you know, I um, I just broke the news to um, our design team and um, none of them obviously had, had seen the news yet. 
And Brendan said, oh, she was simply the best. And I said, boo, Brendan, boo to that joke. <laughs> and then Luke said, who's Tina Turner? <laughs> I, th- I think he said it in jest, but um, it is sort of classic Luke. Yeah. Just blissfully unaware of anything earlier than about 1998. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. The 90s didn't exist. Chuckle about your comment about singing in the car as well, or the kids' kind of brutalness of singing talents, because when I was at primary school, we had a singing class, and I think I was probably only about seven, and they made us sing that Tina Turner song, you know, it's River Deep Mountain High, and mm. that is the hardest song to sing, and this group of like 37-year-olds, and we were <laughs> like perfectly, like it was a stop-start, I can't remember who the music teacher was, but I just remember thinking, this seems really intense, <laughs> but it was really good fun, of course. That That's... A very intense song to have a, not even just one, but a whole group of kids learning to sing. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do the Nutbush, I think, um, today in the office. See, I don't actually know the moves. I just kind of stomp my feet and kick occasionally. Ah, yeah. okay. So you can sing, but you can't like coordinate yourself for dancing. No, I just don't know the dance moves. I never oh. learned them. We'll, we'll go on YouTube. All right. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Yeah. We'll teach. Um, we'll teach. You guys Luke. can teach. Yes. Yes. We'll definitely teach Luke. Yes. Yeah, cultural experience room. Good. Yeah. All right. Um, Kate, before we get on to the serious stuff, what podcast do you like to listen to? Oh, um, well, I love a bit of Brene Brown, which I think most people do. Her um, podcast is, yeah, just great. It's one that I can listen to the episodes more than once as well, and I always get something different because I really enjoy her guests too. Um, Another kind of, I guess, academic one that I like is the American Psychological Association podcast, and they have different um, scholars come on and talk about certain theories and things, and I, I really enjoy that one. It's very kind of digestible but interesting. Um, and then something I guess a bit more kind of pop culture related would be I really like Eyes on Gilead, which is the podcast where um, the hosts discuss The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood and the TV series and kind of analyse in great depth each episode and discuss the characters and sometimes interview the characters too. Um, so mm. that's one I really, really enjoy as well. Yeah, I must admit I haven't watched the series. I've read I read the book and then I read the um the sequel that was released recently as well. Um but the the series I think I don't know. Man, life's already too grim. I don't need to watch that for entertainment as well. And it's all based on true things, which is the yeah. interesting part of that series is we you know, you watch it and you think, oh, that's so out there and imagine if that happened. And then that's what Margaret Atwood says is nothing in her books or, you know, in that series is actually not based on some version of reality and what's happening. Mm. Yeah. What's the scary part? <laughs> yeah. No. Well, that's part of why I don't want to watch it because it just bums me out. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about your professional career, please? Sure. Um, So I actually, well, I think in terms of how I got to where I got to today, um, a bit of a turning point for me would have been when I was doing my master's at uh, Uni of Auckland and I looked at spiritual retreat tourism. So I was really interested in yoga and 
Um, I did my yoga teacher training at the same time as doing my master's. And I really wanted to go to retreat sites and work out why people went there and what they kind of got from going to a spiritual retreat site and, you know, why they spent their free time there and paid for it and all the rest of it. And something that really stuck out for me was that most of the people there, and this was my research topic, um, so I was interviewing people, and most of them were there because they were so stressed out or overwhelmed by their everyday life. So, yeah, that was really interesting um, for me. And I collected my data on a weekend where they had a working bee, like a whooping, uh, willing workers on organic farms. So that then um, encouraged me to go traveling for a year in Europe. And when I got back, I decided to move over to Australia because my mum was over there. And I applied for jobs and I applied for PhD scholarships. And I got a PhD scholarship and I decided to research workplace health and wellbeing. Because, um, yeah, thinking about that spiritual retreat tourism and thinking, you know, people shouldn't have to go away and pay for a weekend away to recover from the stresses of their work. Um, so, yeah, I studied, did my PhD at Monash Uni in Melbourne. Um, while I was doing that, I was doing some research assisting and some teaching. And then after that, um, I was also teaching yoga after that. A job came up within the Healthy Work Group at Massey University in Auckland, which is my hometown, and my uh, academic mentor was there as well. So I hopped over, came back to Aotearoa, um, and I worked at Massey within the Healthy Work Group as a researcher and lecturer for around about four years, and um, was involved in some pretty big teaching courses uh, in different subject areas, teamwork and leadership, HRM, equity and diversity in the workplace, um, really brought my background in sociology to the business school and um, also was on a really big project funded by WorkSafe and the Health Research Council, which was about how to deliver interventions um, in small to medium-sized businesses that can improve the health and well-being of employees across sector. And I was pretty hooked, actually, as part of that research because we were um, in contact with these organisations over a long period of time. And then when I saw a role come up within the public sector, I thought, I'm going to go and work in a large organisation and, um, you know, not just be being the researcher coming in and then leaving again because that is often what happens and sometimes you don't get any follow-up because your key contact might move on or um you know you're you've got another project to get on with so i thought i want to be in there and see what actually happens and be part of the change uh, so that's what uh, facilitated my move across and also it was because of you know covid hit and the academic career really changed, everything went online, um, all of the kind of academic communities were drastically impacted, like there was, you know, a massive lack of networking, conferences, all those good things that actually spur you on, give you that mojo to keep going with research, which can sometimes be quite challenging, um, as well as teaching to blank screens sometimes <laughs> for hours at a time to students in uh, New Zealand or China. And I just wanted that people contact again. So, yeah, I've been working in the public sector now for um, about 18 months. I'm really enjoying it.
Yeah, so uh, you're currently working um, as a health and wellbeing researcher within the New Zealand public sector. So this this latest role that you're doing, um, what does it involve? So basically, um, within the public sector, we often have very diverse employees taking on many different roles. And there can be a lack of data in terms of what health and wellbeing challenges are facing this workforce. And they're obviously a very important workforce because they're also serving our communities. So my role is actually to collect data to start to understand some of the health and wellbeing challenges that are facing our people and then how best we can support them. So it's, I take a very collaborative approach to my research. So it's not about someone kind of coming in and saying, this is what you need to do. It's really got to be about engaging with people so um, I've been involved in lots of focus groups, um, interviews, things like that. We're actually talking to people and finding out what do you need, uh, what are the stresses, what are the things that make you feel like you can thrive, and how can we build upon that? So, yeah, I would say my role has been to be a bit of a communication bridge between our people and senior leadership. Um, and to really advocate for evidence-based changes in that space. Yeah, so um, what are some of the ways that you're collecting that data then, Kate? I prefer a qualitative method, so I'm primarily a qualitative researcher. Uh, so I like talking to people. So focus groups, interviews, they're my favourite kind of methods. Um, not, you know, it's great to have some surveys occasionally, um, but I find that... I always find that people really like to talk about their work. There's never any kind of hesitation when you ask someone, hey, can you spare 30 minutes or an hour or 90 minutes to talk about your employment and you know what you enjoy about that and where it could be improved? So I'm, I'm a talk to the people kind of person. Yeah, that's uh, same as you, Joel, right? That, wasn't that your honours and masters? Yeah, both yeah. of them I did uh, Yeah, qualitative research. Yep. Yep. Yeah, which is why you stick away from the quantitative stuff these days. Correct. Um, <laughs> I did grounded theory as well, which is like... Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. People who know will know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now, that's great. And, and it's, yeah, qualitative methods obviously give you such rich data, right, that you can't get from the quantitative stuff. Um, so quantitative is great when you're trying to get a picture at scale. But if you're trying to really understand you know, work is done and there's no better way than to actually talk to the people who are doing the job. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and particularly with it, – it can also be more culturally appropriate. So within the context of Aotearoa, you know, we're a bicultural country um, and it's quite well known that uh, Māori and Pacifica peoples generally prefer to talk face-to-face. -face. We have a saying it's uh, – kanohi kite kanohi which means literally face to face and that's a preferred way of communicating and it makes people feel often more comfortable because you form that connection and that connection can help to establish trust and a more genuine kind of connection so yeah it works really well within the context of Aotearoa but I think it works anywhere as well because then people know kind of who you are as well and that's very important when you're talking to people about their work because it's obviously quite risky for people to actually talk to you about their work because that is their livelihood. And um, you have to be really careful that people feel comfortable with what they've shared and safe and able to um, know that, that 
their data will be treated with respect and will be used appropriately. Uh, so I think that kind of face-to-face -face is very important. Um, but yeah, there are also fantastic quantitative research projects underway as well. Uh, but just personally, I really enjoy talking to people and getting that diverse range of perspectives. So how does your role currently then compare to uh, working in academia? That's a really good question. Um, in academia, I found that because the academic role is quite unique in that you are critic and conscience of society, so that's part of what you're signing up for when you sign on to an academic position. And with that, you're expected to be kind of objective and neutral in the things that you talk about. So there's that sense of academic freedom and autonomy and it's okay to be critical and it's okay to um, share certain ideas that, you know, might even be quite exploratory and you have those robust conversations and that robust kind of peer review process all the time, whether it's through, you know, just talking to your colleagues in the corridor or attending conferences or publishing it's quite, I find it quite exploratory and quite open-minded in terms of what you might be able to talk about and present. And you're also part of the academic community, which I really enjoy. So um, it doesn't matter really where I've worked. I've always found that I'm part of something bigger when I'm in academia because, you know, you're, you're, you've always got a journal that you could submit to or a conference you could attend. And then you're with your kind of people if you know what I mean, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I find that there's that ability to own your ideas, have that freedom, and to really be critical and conscious of society, um, which is quite liberating, and being around peers who are also kind of in that frame of mind and understanding of those concepts, and, you know, you have a good, robust conversation. Sometimes it gets a bit heated, or, you know, you can have a disagreement, but I really like that. So um, I would say that's kind of the academic side, yeah. And then uh, working in public sector is just slightly different because you are seen as part of that organisation and, you know, there's different kind of rules and expectations around what you do or what you might say or um, you're kind of seen more as a representative of an organisation or as this, of the sector itself. Um, so I think there's a little bit more of a fear in public sector in terms of research because there's a reputation to uphold as well. Both receive, obviously, funding through um, public taxpayer money, but there's a slight different orientation there. And so I really enjoy researching in public sector because you've got great access to participants. You've got a very diverse range of employees, which is much more diverse than within academia. Um, and you have some great opportunities to actually embed the research knowledge or data or findings that you have into an organisation and to kind of see things through when that's enabled. And I think that last comment is pretty key here, that that's not always possible. And that could be one of the challenges within public sector. So do you find, um, I guess, when you're researching as someone who's also an employee of that 
organisation, um, I guess the guarantees of things like confidentiality and, and, and that sort of thing aren't necessarily as clear as they would be if you're coming in as a third party sort of from academia, um, you know, where you've got an ethics board approved project and um, all of those sort of confidentiality requirements are really quite um, explicitly outlined. Um, how do you how do you find that? Yeah. So I this is something that is, I think, needs to be further established actually within really within any organisation actually that wants to run or conduct research in-house. And I recommend that organisations do do that instead of, you know, um, giving this type of work over to consultants, but actually making sure that there are those systems and structures in place to protect both the researcher and people who are involved in that work. So um, some public sector organisations now do have ethics committees and that's fantastic to see. Um, I've actually been a member of one of them and it's a really robust process and it's very similar to a university ethics committee in the way that it's run with internal and external members and very strict guidelines, feedback processes. And I think that's really important. Um, something to be aware of though is that, yes, you're right, because you're, you're then your bills are being paid by the same organisation that you're researching, um, what if the findings are not something that the organisation wants to hear? So that's something to really consider, I think, as a researcher um, going outside of the university is, you know, and, and another researcher within public sector has said to me once, you have to be careful that we maintain being researchers and don't become marketing and communications experts. Because, you know, it's a, while it's important to reflect your organisation well, it's also really important to have that research integrity and your findings, they might not be, um, you know, they might be seen as a little bit scary for some people, but you have to be, um, I was listening to a, actually a, a Radio New Zealand um, interview this morning, which was about um, the public sector use of consultants. And they were saying the thing is, that as public servants, we should be kind of fearless because our whole objective and our, our kind of contract is to serve the people of our country. And sometimes that does mean asking the hard questions or um, presenting something that others might not like to hear. So I would just say that there's just an interesting, it's very important to maintain those research ethics, um, but there are certainly challenges when you are doing that in-house rather than being quite objective and kind of protected by the university to go in and go out, yeah. Yeah, and I would imagine that um, the pressure to soften um, the, the way that you're wording the results might also depend on whether it's just sort of an internal report or whether that's going to be um, made available sort of external to the um, to the organisation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we also have something called the Official Information Act. So um, if, yeah, if someone was to request uh, some information from within the public sector, even if it hadn't been released externally, um, that information could still be actually um, accessed, which is fair enough because, again, this information is paid for by taxpayers. Um, but yes, I think that that's 
something. And the, the other thing is that within the public sector, I think a major difference is, you know, when you do work within public sector, it's attributed to the organisation, whereas when mm. you do work within academia, it's actually attributed to you. So there's those strict kind of, you know, um, guidelines about authorship and intellectual property. And so you can really own your work. And with that, it's really up to the individual what they want to kind of put out there and what they can defend. Whereas within the public sector, it's often, um, I've found that often work can be quite anonymised or allocated to a team or a group or the organisation as a whole, which then, um, yeah, it, it can just create a little bit of a tension between the researcher and the organisation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and there's always that um, that sort of overarching need to write with the voice of the organisation that you're representing, um, and I guess depending on um, who you know who your minister is and what their p- particular policy positions are and all of that, that would sort of also um, have some level of um, influence over um, how far you're able to go. I guess in in terms of how, um, especially if you're if you're critiquing something. And I guess that really depends on the the style of leadership that is within, you know, nationally, but also within organisations too, because, you know, um, I used to teach leadership in the workplace and there's this notion of authentic leadership and actually followers tend to respond really well to leaders who are quite authentic. So that means, you know, sometimes accepting if you are wrong or if an apology is required or if something that was all, you know, had the best intentions but didn't quite land as it was supposed to and just acknowledge that and then make amends. Um, And then within some organisations, there is a kind of leadership that can be more um, kind of, you know, hierarchical and status quo and it can be about maintaining an air of kind of, um, you know, well, we're doing everything right and a bit defensiveness. So it's it probably also very much depends on the leadership. And that could be, like you say, that societal level, um, at an organisational level or even at a team level. Yeah, because I've noticed that in some of my research that it can be so different based on the team that you're actually talking to. You could sometimes think that you were talking to people from a completely different organisation. Yeah, so it, it's really personal as well, but it's definitely one of the challenges, I think. I think that authentic leadership is something that people want to see more of in general. Yeah, not always having yeah. it right, but just have the intention and the honesty and integrity to know when we can do better. Well, Jason is certainly an authentic leader. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what you see is what you get, that's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. <coughs> And and you're uh, you're you're quite happy to uh, cop to it when you've made a mistake as well. Yeah, luckily that never happens. So never. Yeah. No. Um, Kate, I think you've outlined a lot of the challenges about being an in-house uh, researcher within the public sector quite well. Um, 
what are the benefits then, right? So we've talked about some of those challenges. Why would um, you know a public sector organisation like the one you work for want to have in-house researchers rather than, like you say, consultants or engage with academics in um, research institutions? Yeah. Um, I was recently on a, a panel for WorkSafe and it was about innovation and I suggested, you know, bring more researchers into public sector in-house because there are benefits and some of the benefits are, for example, understanding the real intricacies of an organisation. So, um, you know, there's this notion of insider, outsider in research and there's benefits to both kind of positions. But when you're in an organisation, you are actually quite aware of um, some of the, you know, like the culture and the climate for health and wellbeing and how those things can you know, actually be experienced across the organisation or what some of the maybe, um, you know, some of the embedded practices or some of the cultural norms that might come across that if you came in from the outside, you might not be completely aware of. So you, you yeah, I think insider knowledge is really key, um, as is kind of holding accountability. And I think that that's something that's very powerful when you're in an organisation and you've talked to a lot of people and you start to understand some of the health and wellbeing, um, you know, benefits and concerns, then you're in the organisation to actually talk to those people who are the decision makers. That's really important because otherwise sometimes you could conduct research within an organisation, but the buck could stop with a certain leader or a certain employee who might then leave the organisation. It's all kind of lost. So it's really cool to be able to be in an organisation, to be able to present findings to executive leadership teams, you know, to present um, online, to reach out to a wide audience, to put things in board reports, to actually have that real vocal kind of, this is what the evidence is saying. And when I say evidence, I mean evidence from our people, because that's another thing I hear a lot about is, evidence-based but evidence-based it is actually what our people say in the health and well-being space that is our evidence hi listeners jason here we hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode now if you're like joelle alicia and myself and enjoy learning from the best then the flourish dx academy is for you the academy includes free e-learning courses on the iso 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions, and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. Yeah, and, and Kate, Kate, I just want to pick up on that because that's so important. Um, I'm sick of people like saying, oh, it's evidence-based because we've taken it from this one context where, you know, research proved that it worked or this is what they found in this context and we're just going to apply it to our completely different context and because it's evidence-based it's applicable uh no <laughs> like you say uh for it to be truly evidence-based it ne- you need to reflect on how does this actually fit within our context and the way to do that is to talk to your people yeah absolutely people forget that the evidence is 
our people's subjective experiences of their employment. That is yeah. evidence. You know, like we can't go and say, well, we've got evidence for X, Y, and Z. Oh, but it, you know, no one in our organization can, you know, support that, but that's the evidence. It's like, no, the evidence is what our people actually say. They're, they're doing the money, they're doing the work. Um, yeah, we, um, Joelle and I picked up uh, someone, uh, this is a while ago, Joelle, who was saying that their mindfulness programs increase gray matter. Um, in the yeah. brain by a certain percentage. And I was like, oh, yeah, what research did you do? Oh, no, no, this uh, this research paper on mindfulness-based practice, you know, did this fMRI-type study and they found that. I'm like, well, okay, how does that apply to your program? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I think that links into your prior question about some of the benefits of working within um, public sector. You know, you work with a lot of people who have been there for a long time. There's a lot of experience within public sector. So you're working with people who often have quite an in-depth lived experience and knowledge of the work, of the kind of meaningfulness of the work, of the objectives, of the timeline from, you know, some of the milestones the organisation has already been through, the overarching aims and objectives of the organisation. And there are a lot of really knowledgeable people within public sector. And I think that it's fantastic to be able to work with some of those people. Um, And also, you know, employee-led networks are a really big thing over here. And so a lot of public sector organisations have employee-led networks who would be advocating for various interest groups, whether that be... um, you know, the Rainbow Community or Neurodiversity or Women's Network, Pacifica Network, Māori Networks. And I think being in the public sector gives you access to these fantastic collaborative groups of people who have a combined kind of long-term knowledge and experience base within that context and setting that you can draw upon. Um, And, yeah, I met Joelle actually through a community of practice as well, that I was part of um, establishing with the Government Health and Safety Lead. And we bring together multiple agencies from across the public sector in Aotearoa and share a lot of information. So there's actually a lot of collaborativeness and there's a real, I'd have to say that I'm really humbled often by the sense from people um, in health and wellbeing roles that have a real drive and a real passion for improving the well-being of our people. It's not everyone, but there's a lot of passionate and very dedicated people out there, which gives me a lot of energy and makes me want to, you know, be part of this for a bit longer. Yeah, no, Joel and I both had exposure to the government health and safety lead over there and, you know, they are doing a fantastic job, um, you know, like you say, creating that community and elevating best practice. Mm. Absolutely. So um, we, we've started to talk about this idea of evidence-based practice or evidence-based work. Um, so we're interested, I guess, in your experience. Um, would you say that the usual approaches to health and well-being in organisations are genuinely evidence-based? <laughs> Good question. Bit of a leading question, maybe. <laughs> I would say that evidence-based is this phrase which is thrown around and, you know, 
Unfortunately, I think the problem is a lot of people don't really know what it means and what does evidence-based mean um, because, like I said before, you know, the evidence could be talking to your people and actually asking them, hey, you know, what are your health and well-being concerns or what, what are your experiences of the safety climate within this organisation or, you know, do we have a healthy culture? They're just broad open questions, but those are the actual types of questions where you can gain the evidence base to formulate strategy or to formulate initiatives that have real impact. And something that's really important to note is that within the health and wellbeing research literature, you know, participatory approaches, so that's approaches that genuinely engage with the people who are intended benefit factors of initiatives or of changes, um, those people need to co-design, co-develop, co-deliver, co-evaluate the initiatives that you, you know, seek to employ within organisations. And so I think that sometimes that's a little bit lost. So there's still, I would say, still a tendency for there to be kind of um, a lot of decision making without input from people on the ground. So that would be where I would say we could bridge a gap between evidence-based and not evidence-based, which is where I think we should bring in more people that actually have research backgrounds and can provide the evidence and can also have access to things like library databases so that we can actually read the most recent literature and attend conferences and all of these things that you would expect someone who might be able to then speak to the evidence um, to do because that's another thing is you know you can take an academic out of academia but you still have to make sure that that person's part of an academic community because otherwise that distance between the evidence or the research and um, best practice evidence-based becomes greater over time as the person might become then you know another cog in the system whereby coming the party line rather than asking those harder questions. Yeah, and the, I mean the access to the to the databases is a big one as well, right? And I mean that's a a whole separate podcast that probably doesn't belong to us um, around uh, the the practices of uh, journal publishers and and whatnot, um, and and the charging arrangements. Um, I have to uh, yeah, you just remind me of a clip I need to show you from Twitter. This yeah. guy that I follow is hilarious. I feel like I was quite fortunate because with my graduation I actually got lifelong alumni access to the databases which is awesome and I use them all the time and it's really important so yeah do you get do you get full access because all of mine are like limited access maybe because you did a PhD you get the extra I think I get full access yeah from what yeah I'm... yeah but like just just before we move on just think with the evidence base I think the important thing as well is that if we are to truly be evidence-based in our practices and our approaches to health and wellbeing at work, we need to think that that needs to be embedded throughout the system of our work environment. So that needs to be across the board. So it needs to, we have to have evidence-based, you know, inductions, evidence-based training, evidence-based policies and procedures. And all of these things should tie into an evidence-based framework or strategy. And I think sometimes it's just that we do evidence base for one part, but forget the others. And um, you don't have to do it all at once. You know, there might be people listening who 
work in organisations and are really keen to improve health and wellbeing and and want to do that through an evidence base. And it could be starting with looking at, you know, what's the best way to communicate with your employees about health and wellbeing at work? Or what's the best way to um, build a climate where people feel comfortable to share health and wellbeing concerns? Or people can thrive? Yeah, so... Yeah, I, I mean, the whole psych health and safety approach is evidence-based in that you're going through cycles of consultation with the workers, going what's working, what's not, what do we need to improve, measuring and then improving. Um, for those listeners that are interested in delving deeper into evidence-based practice, uh, we did a terrific podcast with Rob Briner at mm. uh, a Birkbeck University, um, who's a real proponent for evidence-based practice. Um, and yeah, it's it's like you're saying, Kate, it's really not a just about reading some journal articles and going, this is what the evidence says we should do. It's about then testing it within your context and then evaluating whether it's working and tweaking as, as required. Yeah. And it might that people know how to do that. So... My research, you know, I say, what do you want us to do? How should we evaluate that? When should we evaluate that? You know, you co-develop that all. Yeah, yeah and I think that um, there's a difference in, I guess, between evidence-based process, which is I think what we're talking about here almost from like an organisation development perspective um, if we're looking at it sort of um, from a, a whole of organisation perspective versus purchasing an intervention that's marketed as being evidence-based and that's a very different thing. Mm. Yeah, I've even been surprised sometimes as a researcher to see, for example, you know, um, people who might deliver initiatives within organisations that conduct their own evaluation on their own success and efficacy which then leads into their own evidence base about their service. And, you know, there's a slight issue with that. <laughs> and that's why I do think it's good to have researchers in-house who can sometimes ask those hard and uncomfortable questions like how, so how are you evaluating your service? And how about we evaluate the service? Because we're actually the purchaser or the buyer, you know, we're the customer here. And then our people are the benefactors. So why don't we evaluate that service or that offering and then build our own evidence base based on our people? And exactly what you were saying, Jason, you know, contextualising that. Yeah, because I think sometimes we hand over a little bit too much of the evidence-based practice to those who have a, you know, maybe even a commercial interest in the final findings and yeah we need to make sure that we are really serving our people yeah which reminds me there's um, someone who's got a fantastic example of that doing a peer mental health advocate program in rail in, in the uk who has done amazing evaluation um so yes get them on yes yeah cool um is there any other follow-up questions you had joel um yes what would you say are some um so i guess this approach of translating evidence, maybe even academic evidence, into practice, um, what do you find are enablers and or barriers to that process? It's definitely about resourcing and senior leadership support. So ultimately, you know, um, 
organizations are kind of like microcosms in and of themselves and um teams need to be like health and well-being experts or teams or advisors need to be really enabled to enact some of the changes that they know are needed and sometimes that can be really complex because there's a lot of players within organizations and a lot of layers so for example you know a lot of policies often sit with hr um or you know a lot of budget might sit with senior leaders so it's about somehow getting that buy-in to the levels of the organization that genuinely have the power and the resource to make the changes needed to do that yeah and that's certainly consistent with um with what we've observed working with our clients as well that you really do need that advocate at the very top of the organization for for whatever it is that you're trying to do otherwise you're just not going to get the yeah the the, the resources um whether that's money time people um whatever it might be yeah and i would say it's at the top you're right but in large organizations like public sector with you know very large organizations it has to be all the way through because the larger the more layers you know so yeah having worked within small to medium-sized businesses it's normally that the business yeah the business owner um but within larger organizations it can you know often the line manager has the biggest influence on someone's health and well-being but then it might be you know there might be two or three layers above them before ceo and board and sometimes those are the layers that hold most of the decision making and those are the layers that need to i think that we need to make sure that those layers are trained in health and well-being um, approaches and understand the importance of not reinventing the wheel or not just doing what we've always done but making some changes where needed and even if it means a bit more work or a bit of discomfort that those layers need to be on board with that um and i guess something that i've seen is that sometimes those middle layers can be people who've been in the organization for a very long time and I'm not entirely sure, you know, why that is, whether it's a part of that kind of climbing the ranks over time or because um, public sector has generally very good working conditions. So good pay, good security, you know, insurances. So people don't necessarily want to leave. Um, but sometimes that can mean people have been in the organisation for a very long time and might not necessarily have the zest for change that you might see from someone who is maybe coming in with fresh eyes or coming in from a slightly different perspective or has just, you know, completed their degree or their postgrad and has a real passion for this topic. So, yeah, I think it's also about thinking how do we make sure that leaders in all layers of an organisation are on the journey towards understanding contemporary health and wellbeing? Yeah, and thinking about things like psychosocial health and well-being, mental health, um, things like trauma over time, things like how we have, you know, benefits for people to have mental health days. And that sickness doesn't mean, you know, that you have to be at home with a tummy bug or that, um, you know, if you're working, you have to be in the office at 8 a.m. and visible until 5 p.m. So those are the types of things I would say we need to 
just continue working on and considering, which will naturally change over time, right? Yeah, and I think that with um, with some of those, yeah, very long-term sort of middle management roles, um, there's probably a lot of cynicism, um, you know, where they have seen, you know, oh, it's the whatever the latest fad is that's going to be introduced and there's a whole lot of money and upheaval and then everything just reverts back to the mean anyway. Um, so I think it's um, when you look at it from that perspective, you can see that it's actually a reasonable response from that group of people to go, well, I know how this is going to go. It's going to take a lot of time and effort. Um, a lot of people are going to get, you know, I guess that the productivity is going to be sapped out of my team to go and focus on whatever this latest thing is and then it's all going to disappear in 12 months' time anyway. So I'm I'm not going to agree to this. Um, so I think, you know, there's um, probably from, from the perspective of somebody who wants to be a change agent, I think having some empathy with um, where that group of people are coming from as well and being able to speak to them from that perspective um, it is really important. Um, I did have um, one client refer to that um, sort of section of the organisation as the permafrost, um, which was uh, amusing and, and a little bit mean, which is uh, really my niche. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, a lot of the time people are where they're at because of because of experience and especially for people who have been there for a really long time. Um, there's probably a good reason why they've uh, they're approaching it the way that they are. Mm, some learnt cynicism. Yeah. And do you know what I'd love to see is just some more transparency in that, you know, and some more accountability. So, for example, you know, why don't we? Um, wouldn't it be great to kind of know where our leaders are at within organisations in terms of their um, knowledge or their training but also in terms of like you know something I'm really keen to advocate for is things like maybe we should publish like the you know statistics on things like personal grievances or sick leave or you know these things because it is public money and I do think that we need to sometimes have a little bit more accountability with thinking so how are our systems working and where are they working? And it's not to place blame. It's just to be very transparent and very honest about um, where we're at as organisations and as also as a society, because you can't often do that. You know, you couldn't really ask smaller organisations or private organisations to do that. But public sector could lead the way in some of those transparent practices and thinking about, yeah, um, and, you know, 360-degree review processes and exit interviews. And it's like I say, all that evidence base all the way through. So not just in the middle and not just when it suits, but all the way through so that we actually have a very solid, very robust process to ensure that um, we are leading the way in this space. Because I think that we really do have the resource to do that. So there's no reason why we shouldn't. Mm. Well, uh, Kate, it's been a fascinating discussion with you today. Um, I think you've really advocated for why, you know, larger companies and government agencies should be investing in internal researchers. So um, I guess one of the questions we like to ask of all of our guests at this point in the podcast is if you look into the future, what would your hopes for the future of workplace mental health be? <laughs> a big one would be I'm a massive advocate of a four-day working week or, you know, less working hours, Um 
I think that that's something that would just automatically improve people's health and well-being and provide people the time because what I hear all the time is I'm time poor I don't have enough time for that I feel stretched I feel guilty I'm not spending time with my children or family um, I think that that would be a fantastic way to across the board support mental health and well-being um, I think that increased transparency as well is a hope for the future because I do believe that you know when we can do things like say will we actually yeah, have minimised, say, gender pay gap or ethnic pay gaps. Those things do increase people's mental health across the board um, when we have equity in our society and in our organisations. And another hope for the future, and I think it's going to be quite a natural progression because people are much more willing to talk about things like mental health and well-being at work, um, would just be an ability for people to sometimes challenge the status quo and sometimes be able to think outside the box and experiment and not always have to get everything perfect and everything right and to pilot some new ways of doing things and to do so kind of unapologetically and in a way that can be experimental and supportive of mental health and that can reflect what our people would like to see and just be human in and of ourselves as practitioners and champions in this area that, you know, we are all on a journey. We're often really passionate about what we do. So my hope for the future would just be that we can keep doing that. Just that. Yeah. That, that sounds like a manifesto. That. <laughs> um, we might have to, uh, yeah, write a short 3,000 word summary of that um, future, that, that workplace mental health future. future. Kate's yeah. future. <laughs> Do you have any words of advice for listeners who are interested in working in the field of psychological health and safety? Um, I would just say always engage with your people. Remember that they hold all the answers um, and at all layers of the organisation, including leaders. Leaders are employees too. So like Joelle was saying before, having that compassion for all layers and all people and their different perspectives and engaging with them. Um, being bold, challenge what is um, what doesn't work, experiment, and yeah, no need to be perfect. So embody the type of you know health and well-being that you want to see. So if you are advocating, this is something I'm really passionate about. If you are advocating for work-life balance or you're advocating for health and well-being, make sure you are practicing that. You know, don't be the person who talks to the employees about relaxing on the weekend and sends emails at two o'clock on a Sunday. Like make sure that you actually legitimate and normalise those healthy ways of being and call out anything that you see that you don't feel fits with a culture of health and wellbeing because at the end of the day, it is a very serious topic. And, um, you know, some people have massive repercussions from bad experiences and some people can be supported in their workplace, which could turn them around from a very negative experience into a positive one. So we've got to think of the workplace as a high impact kind of space where we can improve health and well-being and support people to thrive in their broader lives. Fantastic advice. Okay. Um, like I said before, it's been a fascinating discussion. I think our listeners will get a lot out of this. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Great. 
Well, uh, listen, that brings us to the end of this episode. Remember, we do video these when we have our conversations with our amazing guests, and you can catch those videos on the Flourish DX YouTube channel. Uh, you'll also find that we take short clips uh, and put them on the Flourish DX uh, LinkedIn page. And while you're over on LinkedIn checking those out, you'll find that Joelle and I frequent there uh, quite a bit, probably too much. Uh, so feel free to DM us or connect with us if you'd like to continue the conversation on that medium. But uh, that's it for today. We'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.